Welcome everyone to the CEO.digital show. My name is Craig McCartney and I'll be your host that's going to guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives, those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Today's guest is Jack Carraway, who is the Corporate Solutions Advisor at Dataminer. With a major in philosophy and comparative religions, he began his career in the U.S. as an Arabic linguist. He's a very interesting career to date. He's lived across the U.S., the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. Throughout his career, he's used his unique skill set in service of both government and corporate institutions, identifying, detecting, interpreting, and mitigating risks in geopolitics, counterintelligence, insider threat, corporate security, and also cybersecurity. He is an expert in program design, development, and management, and he's also a specialist in analyzing and advising on complex risk matters at senior level. He's joining us today and speaking about hybrid threats, security convergence, and the role of AI in gathering threat intelligence. So welcome to the CEO.digital show, Jack. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Craig. It's great to be with you. As we heard in my introduction to you, you've got quite an interesting background. So I think starting from the top, I'd like to learn a bit more about your role at Dataminer. Can you tell us about your role at Dataminer and then if you want to give us a little bit of background into yourself as well in terms of your career up until this point? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I am at Dataminer. I'm a corporate solutions advisor. For those in your audience who might not be familiar with Dataminer, a quick introduction. Dataminer is an artificial intelligence company that ingests information from over 600,000 different public data sources that it processes through its multimodal AI models to provide real-time risk alerting and incident management for physical and cybersecurity. And my role as an advisor means that Having spent many years on the customer side of the table, as an advisor, I provide the customer perspective across a wide set of functions, to some degree with product, but especially with our existing customers, helping them mature their security programs and with our go-to-market team, helping to ensure we completely understand and are responsive to potential customers' priorities and use cases. Now, when I say customer perspective, what does that mean? Managing risk is about being able to make decisions with confidence under conditions of uncertainty. And so Dataminer recognizes that every aspect of its solution, from design to user experience, must directly align with ultimately giving customers decision confidence. That means knowing what's happening, getting relevant information and not false positives, efficiently managing incident response, and effectively communicating risk with the workforce. And I've been with the Data Manor now for almost a year and a half, and it's a great team. As you suggested in your introduction, I come to Data Miner and to risk management from a somewhat eclectic background for someone in the risk and security space. In college, I took a double major in philosophy and religious studies. While there, with the help of a particularly talented partner, we opened a, the first student-run coffee house, which still exists today. After college, I enlisted in the Army, 
learned Arabic and designed and taught an introductory course on Arabic and Middle Eastern societies. After a few years in the army and then a short time living in North Africa, I did various things, bartending, helping manage a jazz quartet until eventually starting graduate school in religious studies where I focused on religion and politics. I lived in Morocco on a few occasions and then in Egypt for an extended time to do more advanced Arabic study. Then I took a position as a government analyst focusing on the Middle East and counterterrorism. From that position, I moved into counterintelligence analysis and then moved into more operational areas and became a CI agent and eventually chief of counterintelligence for an intelligence service and chief of operational risk management at an intelligence agency. Then after a few years and having already had the job that I most wanted, I was presented with a compelling opportunity and so left government service for the financial sector and moved to New York to help a small team design and run an insider threat program for a very large U.S. bank. Since that time, I've served as the product content manager for an endpoint cybersecurity solution, worked as a liaison officer to NATO, and have consulted in cybersecurity. And again, now I'm at Dataminer, where I am happy to be a corporate solutions advisor. Wow, yeah, you've been busy, <laughs> to say the least. So it must be very interesting being someone with that sort of background, working in the U.S. Army, especially as an Arabic linguist. Can you tell me a little bit more about that experiences? Um, is there anything that, that really stands out from those memories? And, and then how does that help you in the work that you're doing today? I can. It was incredibly interesting. You know, I, I chose to study Arabic really because it's a beautiful and important language that also provides an entree to an entire civilizational complex that is Western Europe's geographic neighbor and with which it shares a long, complicated history. And unfortunately present, that's also fraught with misunderstandings. And I found that studying Arabic opens up a world that's multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-confessional, topographically varied, of course, politically important, and whose people uh, readily extend warm and generous hospitality. It's been a wonderful experience, chosen initially perhaps for aesthetic reasons, maybe more than pragmatic reasons. But you ask about my general background and maybe the atypicality of someone who studied philosophy winding up in security and risk management. I don't know how atypical it is, but I haven't met many folks like that. And, you know, it begs the question, particularly when we're considering hiring decisions and what kinds of backgrounds we should look for in people who can contribute to risk management. I think that my background in the humanities has proven helpful, not least, of course, because a few years of discipline, tutor practice and critical thinking and a lot of writing can develop the skills that we can't really build from scratch in the workplace. I can teach you counterintelligence or risk management, but I can't teach critical thinking. We can improve it, but we can't teach it. And also because it's actually on a few occasions occasioned some valuable substantive insights. I can tell you a quick story about that if you're interested. Go for it. So a few years ago, I'm going to try to abbreviate this story because I think it's tremendously interesting, but I, but I might be the only one. So uh, <laughs> a number of years ago, I came into a leadership position for a rather unusual risk management capability for U.S. intelligence that was itself in a time of organizational transition. And that organizational transition occasioned the need to take a foundational look at what we were doing. But being so unique, there was no obvious paradigm or example to help us better understand and so to improve what we're doing. It was a bit of a puzzle. There was really no one else quite doing what we were doing. So if we want to get better or understand what we're doing, well, to whom do we look? Where's the mirror? So around this time, I happened on an essay by an Italian historian named Carlo Ginsberg, whose work I'd admired. And in the essay, he relates a fascinating story about the emergence of a new analytic paradigm. 
And that is uh, toward the end of the 19th century, in a series of articles on painting written by an Italian named Morelli, these articles appeared in a German art journal, and these articles proposed a new method for the attribution and authentication of old master's paintings. Now, this has been a big problem at the time because museums were filled with paintings with inexact attributions. And so how do you distinguish originals for copies or, you know, or antiques from forgeries? So Morelli's method was not to focus upon the most identifiable characteristics of a particular painter but upon trivial details like earlobes and fingernails that were individually idiosyncratic, but would be less likely to be consciously copied by a forger. And it worked. And it led to many new attributions of paintings hanging in major museums. So from an analytical perspective, this is kind of interesting. The method amounted to giving significance to inadvertent little gestures to infer artistic attribution, right? Where else at about the same time does that kind of thing become significant? Around the same time with Freud and psychoanalysis, where he infers psychological conditions from little behavioral clues. Okay. At the same time, Conan Doyle is writing Sherlock Holmes mysteries, where Holmes effectively applies the same analytical technique in his case by inferring the identity of the criminal from little clues left behind. So, okay, what do they have in common? Ginsburg points out Morelli had a medical degree. Freud was a physician, and Conan Doyle was a doctor before writing Sherlock Holmes, and he modeled Sherlock Holmes on his old professor of medicine. And so we see that this new analytical paradigm was based specifically on medical diagnostics, which is the identification, interpretation, and diagnosis of symptoms. And what is the method of medical reasoning here? It's called abductive reasoning. And that's a form of inference that involves reasoning backwards from observed details to the likeliest explanation for how they got there. So think artistic techniques or symptoms or criminal clues, or baby behavioral anomalies, or IOCs in your cyber network, okay? And so with that paradigm of medicine and abductive reasoning, we had the framework we needed to better understand and develop that boutique risk management capability for the U.S. government, what we were doing to medical diagnostic reasoning. We were able to arrive at this insight by reading history and literature and philosophy. I think that this strange little anecdote highlights two points. The first one about inclusiveness. In this instance, my own diverse experiences and background helped to solve a particular risk management problem. But the risk management community at large is going to need to welcome and include people in the widest sense of diversity. Academic, yes, but also ethnic, racial, national, linguistic, sex, gender identity, and economic. I mean, it's not only the right thing to do, obviously, but it's also the pragmatically necessary thing to do because the risks we'll be facing will require the creativity and the reframed questions that come from teams with cognitive diversity. And if I can plug a book here, The Diversity Bonus by Scott Page. He's a social scientist in the United States, also a complex systems theorist, outstanding on this point about cognitive diversity. And the second more general point is the recognition that in every case of risk and security management, what is essential is the identification and detection of risk indicators. No matter how subtle or hard to detect those indicators may be, we have to be alerted to risks in real time, and those alerts have to be accurate, comprehensive, and tailored to our specific needs. And if organizations are going to survive in this new risk environment, then that risk detection must be accomplished by an artificial intelligence solution. And there's no other way. And this is where data monitor comes in. Yeah, it's about the how connected everything is. Well, you wouldn't be able to do that without AI, all the data points, all the 
devices, everything that's just interconnected in the world that we're living in. So going into the next point now, talking about the risk in a sort of modern landscape, following your very interesting story, by the way, I loved it. But the world is more connected and more distributed than ever before. And this is true, really, with regards to people, devices, um, data. How does this change the nature of the risk? Or is that what you were alluding to in that anecdote? Indeed. And there has been an exponential growth in connectivity. We live and work in a world of networks and densely connected network of networks, both people to each other and devices to other devices. I read recently, did you know that it's projected that within the next three years, there will be 3 billion active IoT connections? 3 billion, wow. Of course, that's a, a tremendous surface area for a possible attack, a tremendous surface area to to protect. And so this connectivity means that the essential information needed to respond to threats and to make critical decisions is increasing at an unprecedented scale. And that means that we'll see dynamic risk environments with increased attack surfaces, higher unpredictability and understanding the risk landscape. And that creates new demands for efficiently delivered relevant data that cuts through the noise. Now, as for how all of this has changed the nature of risk, I would say that the risks themselves are the same we've always had. There are and have always been wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and famine and fire and flood. The difference now, I think, is that our highly interconnected networks generate network effects. And that means that risks are more frequent, more impactful, and cascade rapidly across different risk domains, with risk in one domain generating new risks for another. And right now, I think we're facing significant near and medium-term risks that could impact at a scale and with a ferocity that none of us have seen, and across the interrelated domains of economics, politics, public health, and the environment. I mean, if we think about politics, we've all observed over the last number of years a comparative democratic decline and authoritarian resurgence that itself has given rise to new conflict. And what does military conflict generate? Beyond the obvious threats to physical safety, it produces refugees. Refugee flows produce increased domestic unrest in the receiving countries. War produces supply chain disruptions and the disruption of energy production and energy and food delivery. That disruption in food delivery can lead to undernourishment and malnutrition. We're thinking about, for example, the disruptions in Ukrainian wheat exports due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But also, you know, so does climate change. You know, Craig, would you have thought that the climate in China would help overturn the president of Egypt? No. <laughs> no, right? But drought in China led to global wheat shortages, which led to skyrocketing bread prices in Egypt. And those stressors didn't cause but significantly contributed to the discontent that fueled the Arab Spring protests in Cairo in 2011. And I think the environment is a good lens through which to see these cascading risk effects. Two years ago, another story, warming in the Arctic caused a weakening of this swirling low-pressure area around the pole. And that pushed the cold air farther south than usual, delivering an abnormally cold spell in Texas. This caused rolling power outages, which caused a shutdown of production plants, which because they were manufactured there at large scale, contributed to a global shortage of semiconductor chips. Is that how it started? Well, that's one of the contributors to it. One of the, okay, interesting. Yeah, other issues as well as as a disruption for the China because of lockdowns. And that Texas incident was an occasion for data miner 
to show value and save lives because Data Miner was alerting energy and utility companies in real time about infrastructure impacts and threats to public safety. So that then helped guide emergency response. Uh, one team used Data Miner to identify no-go areas for their emergency responders. Another team in a major utility company used Data Miner to route water contamination incidents to the responsible authorities. Okay, one last environmental anecdote. Because I, I love these stories of where the world is connected in one event and leads to the consequence of an event of another. Three years ago, China experienced the highest rainfall in 60 years. Okay, This caused the uh, Yangtze River to flood. This flooding put a dam at risk of collapse, and so that forced the authorities to have to destroy the dam, which thereby disrupted cargo ships down the river and within the Shanghai port. This disruption had the effect of disrupting the global supply chain to include the export of personal protective equipment for health workers who are battling COVID-19. So this is a case where excess rain in China led to PPE shortages in middle America. And I offer these examples just to emphasize and give color to the fact that we now live in a networked world where risks in one domain quickly cascade into others and at an unprecedented speed and scale. And these systems are so complex that we can't by ourselves identify all the relevant data or naturally intuit these cascading consequences. And so we need a technical solution to make these challenges tractable. Yeah. And it's not even like you know the what's going to happen with the result of the threat or these things happening, but it's just about trying to minimize the damage from said threat. Right. And understanding, articulating in advance what sort of indicators would be relevant for the type of risk I'm managing. First, so identifying what is a relevant signal, but then being able to detect that signal. And given the interconnectivity and given the extraordinary amount of information available, that's only possible through a technical solution now. And that technical solution is only possible through artificial intelligence. Yeah. And just wanted to move on to a question that I've been thinking about, obviously, when I, I knew I was going to speak to you and, and looking into a bit more about what you do. I've heard the term hybrid threat. Can you elaborate on what that means for, say, like the layman, such as myself? Yeah, absolutely. I'll certainly try. There's a specific and broader connotation to the term hybrid threat. The first is in the international security space, and the other is used more broadly in the corporate sector. So, for example, NATO understands hybrid threats as a combination of military and non-military, you know, as well as covert and overt means to achieve strategic objectives. And so that can include using disinformation, cyber attacks, economic pressure, deployment of irregular armed groups. There may be no conventional uniformed forces or use of direct fires, but we may see coercive diplomacy, economic coercion, disinformation operations, cyber attacks against critical infrastructure, etc. In this sense, hybrid threats blur the lines between war and peace and aim to destabilize and undermine the target's political structures and societies. You can also think of this as the sense of hybrid warfare or gray zone warfare. The focus is on adversaries seeking destabilization for strategic political purposes. And though we may have a new name for it, the phenomenon is really not new at all. An example of hybrid threat in this international security space would be, you may recall the NotPetya cyber attacks in, in 2017. Yeah. This is the attack from the Sandworm APT group, which is a cyber warfare unit within the Russian GRU, which is the Russian military intelligence. 
they targeted Ukrainian critical infrastructure, you know, focusing on energy companies, the power grid, the airport, financial sector. And they approached it through a backdoor in an update of a very popular Ukrainian tax preparation software. It claimed to be ransomware, but it's actually not even ransomware because there was no recovery capability. Most of the impact was felt in Ukraine, but the effects were really felt throughout the world. They estimate, I think, something like $10 billion in total economic impact. And among the significant infrastructural impacts in Ukraine, the radiation monitoring at Chernobyl went offline. Worldwide, it impacted pharmaceutical industries, retail companies, food production, hospital management companies. It even compromised the medical transcription capability at a United States hospital. It had a big impact upon transportation. It shut down India's largest port for a short time. It brought the shipping company Maersk effectively to a standstill for a while. And Craig, frustratingly, Microsoft had already released patches for the underlying vulnerabilities several months before. So hence the importance of security updates. That was the first sense of hybrid threat, which we're talking about the international security space. Outside of national security circles, the term hybrid threat more loosely means a threat against one risk area that unintentionally impacts another. As we often see cyber attacks affecting physical infrastructure or physical infrastructure attacks impacting industrial control systems. In this case, not necessarily as the attempt by some actor to influence an adversary's strategic political decision-making, you know, often by criminals. Now, it may be a blurry line because it may be a, perhaps a domestic terrorist group trying to, or an extremist group trying to achieve some political objective, but an example that would come to mind would be the colonial pipeline attack. This was a ransomware attack two years ago by the dark side group on a U.S. oil pipeline that provided nearly half of all fuel used on the East Coast of the United States. This impacted their industrial control systems, and so therefore they had to shut down the pipeline until the ransom was paid. And this led to significant fuel shortages and societal disruption. Filling stations were running out of gas. Price increases resulted. Flights were redirected. I recall on one single day, 90% of the gas stations in D.C., Washington, D.C., were out of gas. And this attack was likely enabled from a breached employee password that was found on the dark web. Hence, the importance of strong digital asset risk discovery. And that is also an integral part of the data miner solution for cyber. Yeah. With all the threats around, it's, it's not a matter of if, but when, you would think, for a lot of companies. Yeah. So this sort of protection is definitely should be front of mind at board level and for um, the security teams. There is a difference as well in the security, isn't there? Because there's the physical and the cyber. And I think um, data miner really can support both those functions within the, a business, can't they? Yes, absolutely. We've had a very heavy and long-standing footprint in the physical security space, and that's you know physical security, personnel security, employee safety, brand and reputation, risk management, executive protection, business resiliency. But as an AI company, we've now turned our focus also to cyber so that we're able to identify all aspects of risk relevant for cyber. So that's vulnerabilities, threats, criticality of assets, as for example, um, we would discover on the deep and dark web, and as well to your earlier point about cyber physical convergence. Mm. So I spoke about that because we actually ran a survey where we interviewed a number of security leaders, um, physical and digital, and 
a lot of them agree that to counter the cyber physical threat, there needs to be better collaboration between these two security functions within a business. Is that what your line of thinking as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. These two functions connect and to relate and rely upon each other for basic business as usual functioning. You know, this kind of cross functionality with cyber has long been employed in the insider threat management space, where you have regular and formalized cooperation between security, cyber, HR, legal compliance, and public authorities. And that approach, I think, can serve as a good example for best practices integration, because the bottom line is that significant cyber risks to businesses' physical infrastructure and of cyber's dependence upon physical infrastructure mean both that there is an enhanced need for converged cyber physical solutions and that these firms absolutely require a timely and consistent enterprise wide risk picture. And meeting this need is, again, one of the primary reasons that Data Miner is now applying its AI solution to cyber. What about this AI element of the solution? Um, can you touch on a bit more of how the AI works? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. It plays an essential role. But let's take a step back and put it all in context, especially because today, you know, with the impressive and very public achievements of large language models, there's a lot of hype around AI. So when it comes to AI, there's this odd combination in the public discourse of utopianism and apocalypticism. And I think we need to take a breath and recognize that AI is a powerful tool, but that it's neither going to let us beat swords into plowshares tomorrow, nor will it become sentient and decide to kill all of us. Yes, it can facilitate bad actors, you know, the disinformation, deep fakes. It can make phishing emails more plausible. It can poison the corpus of the AI training data itself. And it may well put millions of jobs at risk. And these are all significant concerns that we have to recognize and manage. And at the same time, it can do wonderful things like deep mind predicting the structure of almost every known uh, protein in the human body, which is extraordinary. So it can be and has been an essential tool for saving lives. But you know, back to your specific question. I would say that given the hybrid threats and the interconnected nature of risks that cascade at this unprecedented speed and intensity, it's imperative to find solutions that overcome our most critically limited resources. Our most critically limited resources are our time, our attention, and our cognitive capacity. We need solutions that will scour the world of available sources to discover combine, compile, and correlate that information to deliver real-time risk information, and only AI can do that. But again, there's a lot of hype around AI. And you know, today, I'm sure you've noticed, it seems like every other vendor now claims to be an AI company. But it's simply not true. Dataminer is a true AI company that's been delivering results that's saving lives and protecting assets for over 10 years. But when I say is a true AI company, let me elaborate on that a little bit. How does it work? It pulls data from the deep and dark web, code repositories, IoT sensors, global, regional, and alternative social media, industry blogs, public advisories and disclosures. And then it runs that data from those 600,000 plus data sources through natural language processing, for text in more than 150 languages, through computer vision, for image and video and logo recognition, through audio processing for broadcasts and recordings and scanners, and it implores a generative AI 
to caption the alerts that it delivers to users. It performs trillions of computations daily to deliver timely and relevant risk information that's necessary to save lives, protect property, ensure business resiliency, protect brand name, manage supply chain risk, identify and remediate cyber risk, and as well through its integration with TIPS and SIM and source solution to ensure a strong enterprise cyber risk posture. The next section within this discussion, I know a little bit about data mining from some of the work that we've done with you. Let's look at the future of, say, security operations or security operations center. What does the future of that look like in your ideal world? I think that there are a certain essential characteristics that all SOCs in an ideal world would have. I think it's most useful to think in terms of function rather than as a in terms of a place or a specific organization. So it can be a centralized location or not, but it would involve all risk management functions at that enterprise who would be connected to a single pane of glass solution that provided each of them, depending on their responsibility and expertise, determined permissions, with a single reference window of truth about both internal and external threats. Everything from open sources to internal telemetry, again, you know, as provisioned according to the roles, their software needs and location requirements would be determined by the type of risk they are managing and the time frame in which they have to manage it, from tactical to strategic. All of the risk managers would organizationally resolve, at least as a dotted line, to a chief risk officer. And that chief risk officer would be a C-suite position. They would constantly communicate, collaborate, and coordinate, developing an overall perspective on the organization's risk posture that allowed them to collectively develop risk tolerance standards, identify vulnerabilities, and agree upon priorities. They would cooperate and running through sets threat scenarios to identify unexpected and cascading consequences of negative events, that collective and comprehensive perspectives would be formally factored into all of the enterprise's strategic decision-making. And by the way, we could do all of this today, almost all of it. Now, again, I didn't speak to as much the tactical orientation of the SOC of the future, but rather the practices and policies and procedures of risk management as embodied in an instance of a SOC. But I think that this collaboration and coordination across risk management areas is going to be essential for managing the risks that are here and that are coming. Yeah. And I guess from my personal perspective, I find, you know, you've got the use of all this technology and data mining gives you 600,000 data points um, and gives you all this information. How much does it rely on the human that has to process and then identify those risks and then what they do with that information? How much does it rely on that person using those data points to make proper decisions or effective decisions? Well, if we're speaking specifically about data miner, it's ultimately up to the user to interpret the information. Now, we go a long way because we've collected, we've compiled, we've correlated this information to deliver to the user as fits their specific risk management needs. And it's multimodal AI. So for example, let's say that we pick up a voice intercept that we transcribe that says from an emergency call that there is an incident at a certain intersection. And we also get a picture 
from some social media account of an accident at that intersection, but it just shows the logo of maybe a truck that was in the accident. And also we pick up a traffic camera that shows the accident. We will be able to put these different bits of information together to deliver an alert that says at this time, at this intersection, this company, because from the logo had an accident. Okay. So that's that multimodal push. Now, how important that accident is for the company, what it means for the driver and the driver standing in the company and all of these other considerations, the significance, we can't tell you that, that's up to the user, right? But what we can do is we can say, okay, what do you care about? And given all of this information that we're collecting and all of these alerts that we can provide, we have very sophisticated topical filtering and keyword framing and geofencing that allow us to really drill down to the specific relevant information that the user needs. Now, I think that we're talking about a technology solution, but one of the priorities, if I could, in talking about this interrelationship and this cooperation and coordination between risk management functions, particularly cyber and physical, is that to think about convergence and what to do, I think convergence is like most things in security management, first and foremost about plans, policies, processes, and preparation. So there is a necessary role here for a technical solution, and Data Miner is particularly well positioned to fill that role, and especially with its long history in the physical security space. But you know, the first recommendation I would have has to do with internal organizational dynamics. And here I'm thinking about the CISO and the CSO. I would say to them, if you haven't started, then begin the conversation about convergence. I realize everyone is busy. And if one cyber or physical hasn't initiated the conversation, then the other should initiate it with them. Start wargaming different scenarios to uncover points of intersection, you know, shared dependencies and cascading effects. Consider some level of cross-training, you know, or at least orientation so that there is some degree of mutual understanding. I'd also say begin to work as a coalition so that you can collectively advocate for your shared priorities and resource needs, both cyber and physical as well as other risk management areas. This will strengthen the business cases. And again, find a software solution that will provide both cyber and physical with a shared, accurate, and single picture of reality. And again, this is the function that Data Miner has been created to serve. Well, I was going to ask you for advice for <laughs> the leadership teams, but I think you just nailed it with some of that advice. So yeah, I mean, it all it all makes sense. And I think, you know, if there are any security experts um, listening today, hopefully they did benefit from some of those ideas. So looking at the sort of leadership side, you know, in terms of getting buy-in from the board for a vision that's particularly sort of hard to sell for security, um, maybe because it's, you know, it's more of a reactive as opposed to a proactive idea. But how do you get buy-in without being too... Well, without you know trying to scare the board or being too alarmist about a potential risk situation. Uh, good question. Well, as soon as we approach being an alarmist, then we risk becoming a Cassandra. So, I don't think that going in the direction of being alarmist is helpful. But we have to recognize that it's the nature of security as primarily being a cost function, and. Therefore, there's the challenge of showing value. And often that there's the additional challenge of having to show value counterfactually. Had we not had these closed circuit cameras, uh, CCTV in place, had we not had this DLP solution in place, then these things would have happened. 
right? So it's difficult. People have an intuitive sense and a best practice notion of what sorts of controls we should have in place. But there's always that challenge because, again, it's a cost center. I would say the first suggestion would be quantify where you can, identify value at risk, work with the lines of business to calculate the cost of business disruptions. For cyber specifically, I would consider some of the emerging cyber risk quantification and management solutions that can translate cyber risk to business revenue impact. I would also suggest coordinating and creating a coalition with risk managers and other functional areas, and I touched on this earlier, so that you've developed mutual comprehension and can begin to speak as one authoritative risk management voice. And then finally, and something I've done in a number of organizations is initiate security posture assessments that allows you to identify vulnerabilities, gaps, threats to the assets that you're trying to protect. It can be an opportunity to raise the profile of the capability, make it a formal process because it does a couple of things. Now, recognizing that Time might not be available, but if you can, especially if you can get executive buy-in for this comprehensive look, that will allow you to talk to a lot of other different areas within the company. It will improve your understanding. It will enhance the profile of security. So they will, because of their interactions with security, they will be more likely to think about security. And it puts security in a much better position to advocate for the resources that it needs because it's taken a deliberative broad ecosystem approach to assessing its security posture. Yeah. You would think that at current board level, security must be something that's at the top of people's minds. You would hope anyway. I think it's at the top of people's minds most often when it has to be at the top of their minds. But there's so many things to manage. There's so many concerns that it's essential that they have a mindset for security because when the senior leadership is security conscious, then that can create a culture of security that permeates throughout the organization. Because if an organization does not have a culture of security, then it will be subjected to and it will suffer from a wide array of disruption and potentially collapse. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Jack, I have a few more questions. They are probably just a little bit more to find out about you, if that's okay. I'll try not to throw too many curveballs, but just from a, you know, on a personal note, it'll be good to find out a bit more about you. It's normally a bit more of a, a fun or informal or interesting round that we sort of use to close out the show. Just wanted to ask, is there any, can you remember a piece of advice that you've ever received that's really helped shape your life or your career that is worth mentioning? Ah, well, I can't think of any single piece of best advice. And I'm generally reluctant to give advice in general terms. I realize that any success is the result of some combination of ability, hard work, and luck. And sometimes successful people forget about that last part. <laughs> One bit of advice that comes to mind that I've that has proven beneficial is to pay careful and critical attention to language. And that means try to understand the concepts behind the words people use. Because I've seen misunderstanding arise and programs potentially fail simply from an unavoidable ambiguity and sloppiness in the language used. For example, let's say you're designing a program that will generate risk scores that will 
predict bad employee behavior. We'll predict employee risk behavior. Okay. Well, what does predict mean? One person might hear predict and they think that you're going to tell the future. And another person who says that might say, well, might think by predict, I mean, uncover what's already happening or uncover what has happened that I wouldn't have seen. And I've seen this specific instance occur. And in the former case, well, of course, we can't predict the future. And to try to do so in an organization in that automated fashion would be illegal. It would also be unethical and it would indeed be impossible. But can we use telemetry to infer what could be happening that we might otherwise see? Yeah, absolutely. And can we use it to infer what has happened that we didn't observe directly? Sort of develop a hypothesis and that can strengthen or weaken a hypothesis? Yes, absolutely. But if we don't focus on the language used, then we can fall into a great deal of misunderstanding and programmatic difficulty. And as part of that, I would say, generally, you know, take a mental pause every time you hear a cliche and attempt to unpack what's actually being communicated because cliches are a way we unintentionally conceal the truth with familiarity. They can be a substitute for thinking. So when we hear a cliche, I think we do well to pause and try to unpack what's actually being done and what's actually being said. Yeah. Wow. I'll definitely take that on board. And then looking at a time in your life where perhaps you have not succeeded or failed and then you use that motivation to then go on and succeed. Is there anything, any story that stands out for you? Well, it's a good question, though I have a difficult time of thinking of any success that didn't seem to have a, <laughs> a preamble of failure. Sure, so, sure. Um, and then I guess the other one, a favorite one of mine, which everyone answers very differently, and it is a standard question we do ask here. How does your family describe what you do for work versus what your colleagues or say your boss <laughs> describes what you do? Oh, a good question. Depending on who you ask, uh, broadly something in risk management or security management or cybersecurity. I mean, because I've worked in geopolitical risk management, you know, in the intelligence community, because I've worked in cybersecurity, in physical security, insider threat management, it sort of depends on whichever role I was last playing that most that holds most firmly in their mind. But typically something in some version of something in the risk management space. My mother will tell you that I'm in cybersecurity, which at times is absolutely accurate. <laughs> Great. Well, that does bring us to an end to the show. And I just wanted to thank you, Jack, for your stories and your insights. Um, I've definitely taken a couple of things away from this conversation and I, I appreciate your time. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Craig. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. And then just yeah, have a look at the upcoming guest list we have on CEO.digital. And please be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I think we are on about 95% of the platform. So just search for the, the CEO.digital show and you should find us. Thank you very much. 